0: This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It is meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello, and welcome to Super Age. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Ageist. At Super Age, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a super age? Welcome to episode twenty-three of the Super Age Show. It is great to have you with us here today. This will be dropping February the seventeenth, twenty twenty-one. Have you guys changed your thoughts on Zoom calls recently? I, I mean, I know maybe it was back in November. I was just so burnt out on Zoom. Like you could just not get me on another Zoom call. I didn't. I mean. I didn't care who was on the other end. Sorry, I didn't. <laughs> I just burn out on Zoom. Uh, but now I, you know, I had a big sort of meetup call with a gang of my buddies on over the weekend. It was great, um, and we've been, you know, my wife and I we have Zoom calls with a couple friends of ours, and it seems like Zoom's back. And I'm, I'm thinking maybe it has to do with like the you know pandemic end in sight. Who knows. This week on the show we have Dr. Tracy Alloway, PhD, psychologist, who's going to school us on the power of words, language, how we talk about ourselves, how we talk about others, and those effects. Looking forward to uh, hearing from her. She's got she's going to do book out. She's going to tell us about that too. We'll get to Dr. Tracy in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Discover Live, which is a remarkable. Virtual travel service. I went to Paris with them a couple months ago, sitting in my living room with a friend of mine who was in Florida at the same time. And the remarkable thing about Discover Live is that you feel like you're really there because it's a live guide. You're doing it on Zoom, Zoom Airlines, zero carbon. And you're asking them questions, they're asking you questions, you're seeing the things that you want to see. And I swear I could smell the croissant when he showed us the bakery in Paris. It was remarkable. I've also been to Egypt with them, which was really pretty amazing, Luxor. And last week I went to Vietnam with them with our CTO, who was actually born in Vietnam. It's pretty amazing. And they have a great new trip called Venice at Night, the most beautiful boulevard in the world. Now. Just think about date night, right? Sitting in your living room, going to Venice at night. How awesome would that be? It's a great service. Um, I'm a real convert. The, if you go to their website, discover.live, and you type in the code superage15, because you are an awesome superage listener, you get 15% off your next trip at Discover Live. It's, it's pretty great. You really got to check it out. Hey, Dr. Tracy, how are you today?
1: I'm doing great, David. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely, where, where are you today?
1: I'm in Florida, but it's not very sunny today.
0: <laughs> oh, Florida! whereabouts in Florida?
1: I'm in Jacksonville, so not too far from Disney and ah. Universal.
0: Oh, you're the happy place.
1: I'm the happy place, there <laughs> you <Yeah. is. laughs> go.
0: So I, I, um, I understand you've, you've written 14 books. That's an incredible accomplishment. And that wasn't enough. You've written another one. (laughs) So what is this new book that you've written?
1: Um, It's called Think Like a Girl. And I really wanted this to be kind of a book that I wish was around when I was growing up as a girl. It really addresses a lot of the myths and statements that we hear or even that we say to ourselves, things like, Are women emotional when we make decisions? Do we need to be more man-like or masculine-like to be a good leader? Um, Do we experience depression more than men? And really what I wanted to do is look behind the curtain and see how the brain is actually working in both men and women, and ultimately to maximize the strengths that we have as women to be our best versions of ourselves.
0: Wow, tell me, um, how is my brain different from my wife's brain? I know it is.
1: (laughs) I feel like that's a trick question, David. Um, Well, then depends (laughs) on the topic. So, you you know, it depends if we're talking about happiness. It depends if we're talking about risk-taking. It depends if we're talking about empathy. Uh, And sometimes there are no differences in how men and women approach decisions. And again, that's important to know as well. So really, there's not a one-size-fits-all to answer uh, that question. It's really, it depends in what context you're referring to.
0: Right. I... um. Just like sort of a a, a side note here, Um, so we know a lot about sort of people in our age cohort, and um, the women women don't the women aren't going to agree with me when I say this, but I can tell you I have like the data to back it up. The women kick butt in this age group. That's incredible. Yeah, they're the ones that they're starting the businesses, they're leading the organizations, they're um, they're out front uh, in everything.
1: Yeah. And that's just that's fantastic um, to hear. So the first chapter in the book is actually looking at risk taking. And I had a chance to interview an amazing woman in your similar age cohort as well. She does Spartans and she podiums. She's just amazing. And I really look at the difference in how men and women approach risk. And again, the myth behind that, for example, is that men are more likely to take risks, whether it's financial risks or physical risks, like a Spartan race, for example, um, than women. When in fact, it's not entirely true. If you recalibrate risk to you know, a more generalized topic rather than maybe jumping off a cliff, women are equally risk takers, just like you're talking about here. You know, They're, they're really tough women out there, um, but the difference is the metric in which women use to make that risk calculator. And what they look at is the trade-off. So there's risk, actual risk versus perceived risk. So if you look Mm. at a marathon versus a Spartan, there's a lot of incidences that you're more likely to get injured long-term over doing a marathon than a single one-off Spartan, for example. That's just, you know, if you're looking just purely numerical, or even if you look at what insurance companies use as death rates, mortality rates from say bungee jumping versus riding a bike the more mundane and pedestrian type of activities tend to be higher risk when it comes to mortality rates. Um, So there's a perceived risk, but what women do is that they use a calculator for how that uh, decision will actually make them feel. So, in other words, they're willing to make a very risky decision, whether it's a physical challenge or a financial risk, as long as their takeaway is, you know, this is something I want to do. It's going to make me feel good about myself. And that's a different calculator than, than, you know, how the man's brain is kind of wired and how they approach a risky decision.
0: The men are really primitive.
1: (laughs) I did not say that, David. Just for the record, I did not say that. (laughs) I'm
0: I'm one of them. So I I can say that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, so I you know you're an you're an expert on language mm-hmm. and on words and really the power of words and this is something that I, I I'm very curious about the this idea of where you if we use a certain kind of language how it affects how we feel about ourselves Are, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yes. And I think, you know, it's almost such a simplistic notion, David, that we sometimes overlook the power of words, like you mentioned. One of the big areas of my research focus has been on mental health, and really just how we shift the language in which we use. So um, I was, I used to live in the UK, I worked there. Um, uh, The British Science Association awarded me Young Social Scientist of the Year. And part of that was, I got to survey over 4000 people, different demographic backgrounds, all across the country, to look at what are some of the precursors to depressive symptoms. So when you're starting to feel low, kind of withdrawn, what happens before you get to that point? And I found it was really powerful about your your outlook, the kind of language that you're using to frame how you view the future. So if you're hopeful and you're using words like, I'm hopeful about the future, I do think good things are going to happen. That acts as a buffer and protecting you against experiencing depressive symptoms. Now, what was interesting is that when I looked at the men and women, the women were more likely to use these positive type of words when they talked about their future. They were more hopeful, they were more optimistic about their outlook, but yet we know that women tend to be diagnosed with clinical depression much more than men. And of course, there's a number of reasons. One is awareness, stigmatization, vocalizing, seeking help and all of that. But when I dug a little deeper into some other research uh, threads that I started to explore, I found that it's because men and women need two different support networks when it comes to the way we use language. So for men, it's helpful for them to use words that refer to agency and autonomy. I'm in control. I can change this. I can. So first of all, taking ownership for the situation, that kind of internal locus of control that we say in psychology. So in other words, things are not just happening to you. It's not passive where man, life is terrible, why do these things keep happening? But really saying, you know what, I can make this decision here, I can shift the scale a little bit here and there. And so for men, that was a really powerful strategy that buffers against depressive symptoms. But for women, their use of words comes from a very different avenue. And that is to break the cycle of rumination. So. For women, it's not so much taking agency, it's more stopping that ruminative loop. So sometimes you hear people who experience depression saying, it's just a cycle, I can't get it out of my head. I just keep going round and around. And so even changing one simple word can make a difference. So going from, yes, but this always, to say yes and, I can, you know, this happens as well. So just changing that word studies have shown moving from a but to an and can shift your whole mental perspective to be more optimistic, to be more positive.
0: Okay, I'm gonna put you on the spot. You ready? Yep. (laughs) So I want you to give me a sentence about yourself where you claim your power.
1: Where I claim my power? Uh Uh-huh. With a yes and, or just a sentence? Just a sentence. Okay. Um, I am a psychologist whose expertise is in memory and how the brain works.
0: Okay, and now let's let's do it the other way. So uh, let's keep the facts the same. Okay, and now diminish yourself.
1: Sure. I'm a psychologist. I'm. I'm I i can not even. I'm, I'm getting all <laughs> right now just doing this. Um, I'm a psychologist whose research focuses on memory and how the brain works. But there are other people who may have more knowledge than I do.
0: And how did it feel to say each one of those?
1: Well, you already noticed I began to stutter even <laughs> before I said the words. You, and I know, you know, you, my body language changed too. I noticed even right. my shoulders caving in a little bit as I started yep. speaking. And all of this, as you, you know, you just indicated, this is right on the spot. I didn't know this is going to happen. No, no, but it's a great, what a wonderful way to demonstrate exactly how powerful language is and even how confident you may feel in your skill set, in your expertise. Just changing that language automatically just First of all, changed my whole mindset. I was already stuttering before I started speaking, and my body language changed completely as well. I'm gonna, I need a moment to recover, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry I, mean, I did that to you. I'm fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're a professional; you can handle it. It's all right.
1: Right, that's right. Deep breath. I got this. <laughs>
0: so, um, yeah, I, I find that that's one of the things that people, I. I have this thing where I say like you gotta claim your greatness. Mm-hmm. And my feeling is everybody has a greatness. They are the the, the foremost version of themselves that is on the planet.
1: Mm-hmm. That's
0: like you're the best, you're the best you there is, right? Sure. Yes. But um people are hesitant to claim that
1: mm-hmm.
0: b- because there's a certain amount of risk mm-hmm. associated with that, right? Sure. Yeah. So what's tell me talk to me about that.
1: Um, I think there's a risk on two levels. One is the risk that the imposter syndrome, and again, that's another myth that I address in the book. So a lot of times we think that it's typically women that experience imposter syndrome, and again, just to you know kind of break it down, imposter syndrome is the idea that you don't deserve the success that you achieve, or you're not worthy of any accolades or praise that someone might um, direct to you to your actions, not necessarily you as a person, but what you do. And I, I think it is important to distinguish between praise for a person versus praise for an action. And again, you know, if you just kind of back it up a little bit to early on in your lifespan, there's a lot of research in childhood to to say that when you praise a child for their person, like, oh, you're awesome, you're so great, you're the best, they begin to connect praise with their sense of self and their self-esteem. And here's again where we see the power of words, David, because when you begin to connect words to your sense of self, Words can build you up as well as break you down, as we saw with your simple activity. And so the minute you don't receive praise, you begin to doubt your own sense of self. So it's much more powerful for a parent, a teacher, you know, a mentor to give praise directed to the attention to the action. Like you worked really hard. I saw that outcome Wow, when you were out in the field, you were hustling. That's amazing. I saw you studying and your grades reflect that. So what that does, it shifts the power to yourself to what I can do. And that's, again, the sense of agency, that that internal locus of control, that there are things that I can do as a person to overcome, to make myself better, to grow, and so on. And so when you do get kicked back or knocked down, your self-esteem isn't so crushed in the same way if you will grow up with this whole praise for self. Because you can say, you know what, maybe I just didn't try hard enough. Maybe I can tweak it here and do this a bit better. So it's action-focused instead of self-focused.
0: That's really interesting. The I love this idea. I'm, I'm just intrigued by the effect, like I just, if this is a podcast, we can't see what happened to you when you did that, but you're just, your whole physicality changed. It did. That this idea that we can, we have it within our power Mm -hmm. to change the way that we feel about ourselves. And then also the way that we're reflected out in the world, simply by saying, um, you know, I do this. I'm really good at this. Mm -hmm. Stop. (laughs) <laughs> no qualification right
1: yes yes and that's also a difficult thing again connected with this whole imposter syndrome yeah we often feel we have to make a reason i'm really good but you know it's okay if you don't want to use my ideas. so we right. we try to have this caveat and um right you know false humility but really it, it's a protective mechanism exactly mm-hmm.
0: yeah exactly that's and, and that's what i wanted to get to at was that there's a risk in claiming this right it, yeah. i don't i don't think they're is actually risk but we perceive it as a risk
1: mm-hmm. that
0: we claim who we claim who we are
1: mm-hmm. yeah and it goes back to even risk taking from our earlier conversation the actual risk versus perceived risk and right. a lot of times we make our decisions based not on the actual risk but a perceived risk so if we perceive that if we put ourselves out there as an expert or you know we know we have this amount of knowledge or skill set and oh my goodness we we don't we let someone down there's that perceived risk that we're not good enough. And that's why, you, mm. you know, that those childhood years are so important when you look at how praise is given and, and even for adults, it's not too late. So, <laughs>
0: and so now let's, let's talk about it. So we've talked about it, self speaking to self, mm-hmm. the, the effect that has. Mm-hmm. And so let's bring another person in the room. So mm-hmm. if you, what's the effect on the other person um, if Well, first, let's do it. um, Meet like, so there's another person and you're talking to another person and you've, you say those, you say it two different ways. Like the one you claim who you are and the other you qualify and diminish. What, what happens? How does the other person take that in?
1: Yeah, so a couple of things are really happening in the brain at this point, and it's true for both men and women. We have something called mirror neurons in our brain. And like the name suggests, it's like a mirror. So we, they are going to reflect what we're giving. And you know, maybe to use a, a commonly used phrase, the kind of energy that we're giving out. So when your body language starts closing in, they're going to mirror that as well, and and they may start feeling a little a little low, a little closed in, and as a result, that conversation may not be so rich and enhanced as well. So you really see mirror neurons kind of kicking in with how people are interpreting, you know, that communication as well. Um, and the second piece is empathy. So a lot of my research also looks at empathy and how we communicate both online as well as offline, face to face, and um, that's a big part where, you know, mirror neurons are a big play a big role in empathy. And so you may see someone maybe trying to kind of sympathize or feel sorry for you when really what you want is for them to reach out and say, hey, if you're an expert, I've got this project I'd like some support on or maybe we can collaborate. So you can have a completely different outcome just because of the words in which you're using and then think, no one ever, no one ever respects my, you know, my talents, no one's seeking me out, when it's really because of the words and the way in which you're presenting yourself.
0: So do I understand if I diminish myself and there's someone looking at me, they empathetically diminish their selves too?
1: They can. So it does depend on the person and their levels of empathy, but people who are highly empathetic, their mirror neurons will kick in. So- Imagine, you know, when you've been at a conversation, maybe pre-COVID and you've been at a party and, you know, you start, maybe you kind of clap your hands and you're like, oh my goodness, you may notice them, you know, their eyes widen. And so they mirror, I mean, your eyes just widen with my eyes widening you know? And so you see, even in this small digital uh, interface, we're mirroring each other in a small in a small way. And we do that with language. We do that with our body language as well. So they may, they may leave that conversation also not feeling very positive. Right.
0: This is fascinating. Uh, So if the reverse, I claim my power, I say, this is who I am, done. Yeah. And, and I, the body language goes along with that. Then the, the empathetic person on the other side of this will all, will potentially mirror that, like, they'll start feeling good about themselves because I feel good about myself.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there's wow. you know, there's a lot of research looking at, you know, the power pose. And in two minutes, research has shown that cortisol levels have decreased, for example, the stress hormone uh, decreases just from having that confident stance. So if you're putting your hands on your hips and power posing, there's other research to show that um, I think they had 300 participants in this one. And they said, sit up straight and write down traits about yourself that are important for success in a job. And now um, slouch. Same thing, write traits that you think would kind of help you you know, be successful or not successful in the job. And they found just that simple posture was really how they perceived themselves. So if you sat up straight, they were more likely to write positive traits, but more interestingly, they were more confident in the traits in which they put down. So, again, just, you know, the words and body, um, we're not disconnected. Although we are talking about the power of words, the way in which we communicate those words physically make a big difference as well.
0: So, I, I, I guess um, where I wanted to go with this is that um, we had the example, if I diminish myself, and mm-hmm. I'm talking to somebody who's fairly empathetic, they're going to start to feel bad about themselves because they, yeah. they want to sort of bring themselves down to my level. Mm-hmm. Then it, it so the converse of that, I feel good about myself. I'm just going to say, Hey, I claim this. This is who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm whatever. I'm great at this thing. So then we're actually helping the other person feel good about themselves because they're going to mirror my feelings. Is that, did I get that right?
1: Yeah. In some sense, it's an invitation for them to say, well, that's amazing. You know what? I'm great at. Yeah. And so, you know, they may also using that same positive language and then start feeling like, Wow, I never really thought about it this way. Right. I, I am good at this.
0: Um, oh, that's brilliant! Yeah, because <laughs> it's it's. It, I love this because it's the opposite of what yeah. I would. have, You know, the normal is like, well, I'm going to make myself like not look so good, so they don't feel so bad. But actually,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's the reverse.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Amazing.
0: So interesting. It. I'm, I'm wondering. It seems as though there might be gender differences in the way people use language when they're younger. Does that change as people age?
1: I think that's a really interesting question and I, I think to answer that I'd like to look at um, some of the literature on narcissism because I know we're talking about greatness and if you think of it on on, on the other end of ex- the extreme, right? Is it, I am the best. I'm good at everything. People need to hear what I have to say. So I've done a lot of research on this particular topic. I've I've um, you know done experiments on hundreds of, of different samples and, and published the research as well. So what I notice are two things. One, there's you know gender differences as you indicated, not just in my own research, but it's well reported. But the second thing is this age difference, where today. Um, when you when you give the same narcissistic scale, so there's 16 questions, things like I'm great, I'm good at what I do. So not dissimilar to this little activity that we're doing together, where you claim your greatness, you speak your greatness. But for some reason, when this narcissism scale was first developed 30 years ago, that was considered, you know, the higher you were on the scale, the more narcissistic you were. But I think that has, really experienced a cultural shift. So today, if you ask a 20 something year old to say those, they said, yeah, that is my greatness. It's not me being narcissistic. It's me just owning what I'm good at. And so you definitely see that shift where um, other researchers have argued that the words in which we use are a reflection of a more narcissistic culture. I would disagree with that. I would say that our culture is now being encouraged and enabled, if you want to use that word, to express what they are good at and rather than shying away from that. It's almost, you know, this kind of self-motivating talk and kind of look at yourself and say, yeah, I'm good at this. I've got this. Whereas in the past, you are not supposed to do that. You're supposed to kind of downplay your skill set and so on. Um, So definitely in my own research, I've seen that shift occur. And, you know, there's, as I said, a big debate in the community too, whether this is a positive or negative. And I think, you know, my view is that narcissism is very helpful uh, and it can be very hurtful. It's, you know, like any aspect of personality, there's a, there's a a kind of extremes on either side. And so people who are narcissistic can take their ideas and make it happen and be a good leader. Um, But there can be a point of too much as well. So.
0: Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot again. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, we've just gone through like four years of a pathological narcissist. <laughs> I'm not going to mention him, but um, so there's that, um, and then there's the statement of what you started out with. You said, "I do this. Mm-hmm. I'm good at this." Mm-hmm. So, um, the one there is uh, is not so good. Mm -hmm. And the other one is just sort of stating who you are and what are the, so, because I think this is an interesting, this is a really interesting point. This idea of narcissism is, is generally thought of as a a condition to be treated. Sure. And, you know, just, just like stating a a fact is the, is the more um, the pathology of that, Mm -hmm. the inability to take in information saying that like, you know, maybe you're not infallible or like, how does that, how does it, you're, you're, you're professional with this. How do you, yeah. how do you demarcate somebody who's like really comfortable in their skin and confident sure. and the other end of the scale?
1: That's a great question. And so I'm also a licensed psychologist, a clinical psychologist. And certainly, as you pointed out, David, there is a personality disorder for narcissism, but what we're talking about here is more just the kind of, you know, generic narcissism statements that we may say about ourselves. And some of us may believe them more strongly than others. So I think there's, there's two aspects here. So if we leave the clinical side of narcissism to one side and look just really at probably 95% of the population, you know, as far as like that spectrum there, um, when we do make those statements, there, there are a couple of things. One, what is, what is the feedback? So for example, if, uh, you know, a, a Serena Williams says, I'm really good at tennis, there's lots of external evidence to back up that statement. If I say I'm really good at tennis, there's no external evidence to back that up, you know? Maybe my mom, you know, will kind of say, oh, sure, honey, good job out there. But other than that, there's nothing. So I think there has to be some external validation of you just, you know, so you can't just walk up there and say, yeah, I am the best. Um, So I think the difference there is the support, the use of superlatives, rather than, you know, this is what I'm working on, I'm really good, or I want to be better at it. And second, as you mentioned, that room for growth. Um, So when you look at a clinical uh, narcissist versus your kind of everyday narcissist, if you will, um, the difference is typically whether they have room for um, exploration of different ideas, discussion, collaboration. So if you look at it in the context of a leader, I'm sorry about that.
0: Um, Was that a thunderstorm?
1: That, that is a thunderstorm. I didn't know if wow. I needed to just stop or if that's okay for the recording. But, um, that's
0: fascinating. <laughs>
1: um, so if you look at it in the context of leadership, um, again, there's not a there's not one trait that is makes a person a good leader. And again, this is something I've I've had a lot of chance to work with female leaders, men and women leaders. And I find that a good leader is one that is adaptive to the situation. So in some cases, a good leader is goal-directed. You say, hey, we have a project, we have a deadline, we're getting this done. That doesn't make them a narcissist. That doesn't make them a bad person if they're goal-driven. But Other situations may require a more collaborative team effort, saying, hey, let's all work together. And, you know, as a team, we can find solutions to this goal. And so a good leader is one that is able to read the room, if you will, and adapt to that situation. And a pure narcissist would not be able to be so adaptive. They would just hold the line with whatever they feel is correct. And the difficulty there is that... um, you have a 50, 50 chance of being right. And so they're reinforced, you know, the times where they do hold the line and they're right. It reinforces them saying, well, you know, that one time I, I said, everyone's got to follow what I'm saying and it worked, it paid off. So we're going to keep, keep doing that.
0: So we live in an age of personal branding mm-hmm. to be a person is to be a brand. <laughs> and that's, I feel kind of weird even saying that, but that's sort of the reality. Sure. As because we are, you know, we have social. You know, there's not just Instagram. There's LinkedIn. There's like all the things you put out of the world. It's an expression of you, your mm-hmm. brand, the, what you want the world to see. So, how would you advise people as there is Because this is something people, um, especially who are a little older, have some difficulty with. Like younger people, as you said, they, they have no problem just being like, "Hey, I'm awesome at this." Um, you know, look at, look at my greatness. I'm, I'm fantastic. For, for someone who's older, it's, uh, it's a little harder. Um, Mm -hmm. And you're, you're English. So you have like a sort of a double disability with this.
1: (laughs) I never thought of it that way, David. (laughs) (laughs) My shoulders are caving in even more.
0: Sorry. (laughs) You've overcome it very nicely. (laughs) Tell me um, what, what, how would you advise someone as they're showing the world themselves in a in an accurate way, but not a self-deprecating way. What? How would you? What advice do you give people?
1: Um, I think the best advice is really the same advice that I've heard as a writer, as an author, which is show, don't tell. If you want people to see your greatness, don't tell them. Hey. I'm great, show them what you're great at. You know, I know you've had a chance to have some incredible guests on your show. And my uh, speculation is that their brand is to show the world what they do rather than walking in the room saying, hey, I'm so great at this. And I think especially because like you mentioned, we are a brand, it's an image driven uh, platform. It's a great way to say, look at this picture or look at this event or this, rather than kind of constantly needing that long exposition of why you're great. And I think sometimes it's it's difficult for us, especially maybe again, back to this idea, if we haven't been reinforced about our actions enough, we feel such a need to explain ourselves constantly. And I see this a lot in my practice too, that maybe you've lived a lot of your life not feeling heard. And so when you get to this point of having achieved a lot, you want to make sure the world hears you and hears your greatness. But the best way to do that is just to show rather than tell, um, and again, you you know that mirror neurons will kick in too. <laughs>
0: so, um, like, suppose somebody has, uh, like you mentioned, the feedback loop. So yeah. the feedback loop in social media is the like button. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> <Right>? So, <laughs> how do you how do you square that? Like. Saying, like, oh, you put something up, oh, only three people liked it. Oh, or a thousand people liked it. Oh, I guess I must be somebody. Like, how do you what do you tell people?
1: Yeah, and I think that's again why it's so important to distinguish between the brand and the person in the same way we distinguish praise between the action and the person. So if you're creating a brand for yourself, you have to recognize what your brand stands for, may not necessarily be who you are as a private person. You may be these wonderful traits and characteristics and so on. And you know, not everyone needs to see that or needs to like that side of you. But if your brand is a chef and you're cooking and you're creating these meals, then that's what you focus on and you and and separate your your person and who you how you actually connect and engage with people. Um, and I think part of the brand, too, and I think this is something that's often overlooked is that. Social media does get such a negative, you know, and and they are negative sides, but in as much as anything, it's a double-edged sword. So I think a big aspect of that is connection. So in my own research and in my TEDx talk, I I look a lot at that empathy, which is associated with connection with oxytocin. And there's other researchers that have found that that like button gives you this, this shot of, you know, like bonding, you literally feel like you're having a great conversation with someone, but it's more than just a like button. So if I would say to the person who is feeling frustrated, then you need to almost find your tribe. Um, and again, I know that's a little cliche, but if you think about how men and women approach stressful situations, and if you're creating a brand and not getting the results you want, that could be a, a form of acute stress. And so for women, the tend and befriend is a, a good approach, that's connection. Find the people that you're connecting with as part of your brand, reach out to them, make sure you do more than just like their post, but actually say, hey, you know, I saw this, really encouraged by what you posted maybe check out what i'm posting too um and so that that could be a good response now men tend to have the fight or flight or freeze response so again how you know how to calibrate that in response if their brand isn't maybe hitting their target what do they need to adjust um, there to help them work with the stress
0: fight flight or freeze yeah <laughs> I told you we're not very advanced. We're really we are the primitive gender. We just
1: well, that depends on how you look at it. If you're the one protecting the tribe, oh that's, right, well, that's yeah, great, okay. right. You want to protect your tribe by fighting or fleeing? It's survival. It
0: just seems very reptilian. It sounds like these are the options available to a lizard: like fight, <laughs> fight or freeze. Like
1: well, all of us still use that kind of reptilian brain. You know that emotional brain, your amygdala, and your emotional decision-making center. So we're we're all guilty of, of uh, using that and, and and that is helpful it's connected to our survival mechanism so
0: yeah absolutely it's the it's the threat assessment that it's right. that's, that's the issue right How, <laughs> is this really threatening or not
1: exactly actual versus perceived risk
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah wonderful so w- what are you working on now
1: I'm, I'm, the book is coming out in May. So that's my big push. I do right. actually have, uh, I'm also very excited about it. I have a memory app. So a lot of my research uh, is connected to measuring and evaluating on memory. Um, I had a couple tests published by Pearson. And so the app allows you from as young as five up to 79 years of age, do a quick scientifically based assessment of your memory to see you know how your visual memory is how your your verbal auditory memory is and then there are tips so it's based on your five senses and it's all based on science and it's something in action that you can do every day um to help boost your memory so to give you one example it is uh blueberries, that's connected with your taste, your sense of taste, um, eating a certain amount of blueberries and all that is in the in the app. And so it tells you exactly how much you need, how long the studies show before you start seeing significant improvements to your memory. Um, other things could be, you know, fun things. So the, the touch, I, I based it more on action. So different things like cycling or Tai Chi or Pokemon Go and uh, how long the studies show you need to engage in those activities to see improvements to your memory
0: do you know memory tricks? Like if I, <laughs> I bet you do. So um, give me a trick. We've gone like so off script on this.
1: Um,
0: give me, so if I have trouble, I, I often, this often happens to me, like I'm, I can give some kind of presentation or something. And then there's like, you know, a lot of people come up to me and they tell me their name and they, you know, whatever. I have like a 30 second interaction with them. And some people like really good politicians or good, like front of the house restaurant people have this ability; they just remember everybody's name. What's the trick? How how
1: can I improve? Um, for a lot of people, it's not a memory problem; it's an attention problem. So, ah. especially if you're a speaker, your attention is very diffuse at that point you've just given a talk so you're you know you're kind of coming down your hormones are kind of recalibrating from that adrenaline and so on so you're in a more relaxed state already which is not the best state to be in when you want to remember something so you're like i did it the hard part's done and so people are coming up to you and at this point your attention is probably shifting like okay do i need to make it this way am i meeting you know my colleague afterwards how much time do i have before the next event so you it's not a memory issue. It's just the attention issue. So, you know, one trick, if you will, is just to tell your brain, you know, just for these 30 seconds, just focus and keep saying their name and again, you know, over again. Well, Bob, it's so nice of you to stop by Bob. Thank you again. Now, Bob, tell me where you're from. Are you from, you know, Kansas? That's great, Bob. You know, I went to Kansas and just that repetition uh, can help reshift your attention back into the conversation. But again, it's not a memory. It's, it's, not very often that remembering names is a memory problem, it's an attention problem. And especially at the end of a presentation when you're in that relaxed state of mind.
0: I, I've, I've met some famous politicians. They're, they're really good, really, really good at this. And mm-hmm. my, my favorite story is this, the guy, his name is, uh, his name is Pierpoint and he's a restaurant owner in New York. Mm-hmm. And he ran the Tribeca Grill mm-hmm. and I went in there once. And yeah. he was at the front and he sat me down and it was like two years later in another city on an escalator, the guy's there. And I, I don't really recognize him. He turns around and he says, Hey, David, how are you? And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> it's extraordinary. Said, you think <laughs> I must be a person? Maybe I'm a very memorable person. I don't think I'm, I don't know. I think he's just that's has like,
1: greatness, David. Super
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Okay. Maybe it's not him. Uh, Dr. Tracy, this has been it's just, you're just like so much fun. Um, thank, thank you for s-
1: having me. This is fantastic.
0: <laughs> this is a really fun conversation.
1: Um,
0: so I, I hope you don't get too wet um, with whatever, I, you know, the thunderstorm yeah. out there. And, um, and you have a wonderful rest of the week.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay, great having you. Everyone, thanks for listening today. That was so interesting. I mean, I'm, I, we're doing this on Zoom, so I can actually see Dr. Tracy when she um, you know, was doing this. And to watch her body language between the two statements, I thought was just fascinating. And I loved what she said about how if we diminish ourselves, the person we're speaking to oftentimes diminishes themselves to make us feel better. But then the reverse, if we hold our power, they do too, and they feel better amazing, not what I was expecting at all. So um, if you're in a podcast app, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. And so maybe subscribe to this one. We'd really love to have you. And if you're listening on the front of the Aegis website and you would like to have this delivered and you're not quite sure how to do that, you can download an app like Google Podcast or Stitcher and then search for SuperAge and subscribe. And then we'll be with you every week. Thanks so much for listening in. If you want to contact me directly, hit me up, david at superage.com. Criticism, comments, whatever you got. Love to hear from you. Please also rate us if you can and leave a comment on the app that you're listening to this podcast on today. Everyone, have a wonderful week. It's been great having you with us. See you then. Bye now.